Hello everyone, welcome to another exciting episode of ARG Presents here on FM7 on the dial. I am DJ Aaron, joined by a man who's smooth as silk, his voice is like honey. Give it up for the Brent. Hey everybody! <laughs> wow, wow, you're really smooth, smooth, smooth <laughs> as honey, my friend. Thank you. How Thank are you doing you. this week, my friend? I have have had an excellent and exhausting and awesome week. Oh. How about yourself? Well, I think that sums it up. We uh, we just celebrated the Fourth of July here uh, in the U.S. of A. And we celebrate that by blowing up parts of the U.S. of A. That's right. And so, and <laughs> celebrate so, the birth of your country by destroying a small part of it. Yeah, we uh, we went out and uh, watched the big, huge, uh, epic. World-changing hurricane fireworks display, which I will say was epic indeed. It was they did a great job here. Of course, you can they tell they were that you can tell they were saving that last shell to be the very final firework. Yeah, they had one of those neat color-changing, almost animated ball fireworks. It was pretty good. Nothing beats a ball firework, that's for sure. Also, speaking of having a ball, let's talk about this week's uh, machine. We spun the wheel. We made the scary, frightening deal for me, and that was the deal <laughs> to play to play games on the Fujitsu FM7, Brent. No, the Fujitsu Micro 7. I'm sorry, what? You got the FM7. Yes, I know, but it's the Fujitsu. You got my, Look at my graphic. That's, the, that's their logo, not mine, my friend. <laughs> so the FM7, Brent. Now, <clears throat> I'm guessing... You had never heard of the FM7, because I, I had not heard of it, except maybe we mentioned it during uh, what what systems got what games, but otherwise, I don't I didn't know jack squat about the FM7. What about you? No. No, I, I mean, <clears throat> I, I didn't know it existed. I would have expected this to just be some sort of, like, uh, uh, FM Towns rename or something, which, well, is, I mean, it did build up to it, but... You are close. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I had no idea this system existed. We, uh, uh, you know, if you've if you're a long time listener uh, on ARG presents, we covered in a uh, in a rather historic episode. We had an FM Towns Marty party here, and we covered the uh, FM Towns Marty, which is sort of the wacky consoleized version of the FM Towns PC. Yeah, uh, and if you, I don't want to ever go back that way again. Well, listen. If that ever, was if, an emulating car If a car Marty ever comes into our possession, which is the portable version, we're going to cover it again. Uh, but uh, uh, this is a predecessor of the FM Towns, FM Towns Marty. This was uh, Fujitsu in their uh, early days, coming up with these computers. And uh, this was their effort from back then. Uh, a, an interesting, it's an interesting system in that there are so many variants of the system. Uh, the, uh, I mean, I looked over, there were quite a few. I just kind of did a, kind of a very, uh, quick look at this thing. Of course, obviously, manage, uh, manufactured by Fujitsu. This thing, Brent, was released way back in November of 82, a long time ago. Uh, this thing opened up with a price of 126,000 yen, uh, Brent. Which, if you put that in American cash back it's in the day, twelve hundred fifty bucks, yeah, which would be top dollar these days. Uh, this thing ran for a couple years, and they sold around two hundred twenty thousand units of the F FM7. Now the FM7 had wow. many uh, variants. 
There was the new FM7. There was a bunch of FM7s. Uh, and <clears throat> everything I've read was that this thing was a... They they'd released an FM8, right? And this was sort of a cut-down FM8 that was missing some features that the FM8 had. Uh, it's funny, uh, when I got to looking at how to play this thing, how to use it, there's a very important series of uh, dip switches on it that let you change how the machine works. And amongst the dip switches is an FM8 compatibility dip switch, and there's also a dip switch between that lets you literally switch between a DOS uh, OS and a BASIC. So you yes. literally switch. And if, and if you're trying to emulate this, yeah, you darn well better know about these switches, Brenner. You're boned, yep. as, you, as you know. Uh, this thing, to get a little technical, it had uh, two MC68B09 CPUs at 2 megahertz. Uh, one was for graphics and one was the CPU. Uh, this was the first machine, Brent. I thought this was pretty interesting. It really kind of blew my mind. Uh, this broke the eight-color barrier. Uh, this thing could simultaneously ah. display 4,096 colors uh, for the first time. <clears throat> so that it, that's kind of neat. It had a... Uh, it had decent sound uh, as well uh, for a machine. And I, I have to say, the music in this, having looked at several games, ranged from, like, what you would expect to, like, not bad, you know? Uh, it had a... Uh, uh, okay. Well, you you have a thought on that? I, I do not feel like so. Maybe they just did not take advantage of the technology on some of the things that I saw. Yeah, it had three-channel sound. And it had it was one of those machines that had the speaker built into the machine, so that's that's how that went. Uh, this thing stored all of its data on five and a quarter inch floppies. You know, you'd also obviously had a tape. Uh, you could use t cassette tapes, and stuff was sold on both. In fact, uh, some games were sold on both because I found boxes for for both of the uh, uh, for the uh, things. This t was a pretty popular ma machine, all things considered. It's funny, the processing and stuff, it's very similar to the Coco, the TRC color computer. Although, really, uh, having played some of, the, some of the, uh, uh, the games on this machine, I didn't find them to be all that similar. What did you think? Not at all. No, I, I felt the, uh, the games were probably more advanced than the Coco, uh, just from the few that I've played. Yeah, I would, I would have, to, have to agree with you there. Uh, they, uh, I think there's a, obviously the colors are more vibrant uh, in this than you would than you would have expected on the Coco. I did the colors, notice, children. Hey. The colors, the colors. I did notice looking through. I've got a huge list here. According to what I've, according to what I found, there were 212 games uh, released for this, uh, and uh, which that's it's not the biggest library, but it's decent. A lot of the games that I saw were looked like uh, like JRPGs. Uh, yes. Or, and there was stuff that, you, like, <clears throat> if you're looking at this stuff in 2020 and you're an English speaker or a non-Japanese speaker, uh, much like uh, a few other consoles, this is probably one you're going to have to step back and, and and think about before you get into. Sort of like the Wonderswan, Brent, uh, the handheld, where a lot of the majority of the, of the titles are in Japanese. Uh, and, and this one, it's like I said, there, now I will say there's a healthy, there's a healthy uh, a dose of, of arcade ports. Uh, that you could get into, but a yeah. lot of stuff that you're going to have trouble. There's going to be the language barrier uh, in. Yes. But that looked like they were looked like a lot of the titles. I kept trying to find title after title, and it kept being uh, these JRPG type games. <laughs> I was just like, or, or 
or stuff that graphical text adventures. Stuff like this. this was 82, after all. But I found overall that on, on games I could figure out or stuff that was arcade-based, I found them to be fairly pleasing looking. I mean, for, uh, you know, on the average. Did you look through the library that much? Well, I, I probably looked at uh, a dozen or so games. Yeah. And much like you did, I would just load something up, see what it was, and it would be uh, some kind of graphical adventure or something that was very obvious to me that I wasn't going to be able to play. Yeah. So I would exit out of it and then go to the next game. However, the games that I was able to actually load up and play, they were very pretty. I mean, they uh, these usually what seemed to be the issue is the animation kind of sucked, but the graphics themselves were very uh, uh, crisp, very colorful. Um, but to me, I thought oh, everything, and it might have just been the, the games that I happened to stumble upon, I thought they all had really bad sound. So that's something where you and I did differ. I, well, I, what I, I thought that I heard a couple decent tunes, uh, but you know I will say I mean yeah it's I would say it's a, a step up from say the ZX Spectrum. Let's put it that way. The oh original. certainly, um, certainly. The uh, you know I mentioned that this was considered sort of a cut rate version of the FM8, uh, which would uh, as far as I could tell that FM8 was the cons was the computer that came right before the FM Towns. Which I'd say there's a pretty good leap there, but the FM8 had this thing called bubble memory technology, uh, which apparently was it was pricey, and so that got left out of the FM7. I don't, and honestly, having not looked at the FM8, I don't know how much of a difference that made. But whatever it was, apparently it was that was where they they cut they got the cut on the price. In fact, in production, this FM7 was known as the FM8 Junior, which is a good move. Uh, getting rid of that that moniker is always death. Yeah, uh, you don't. You don't, you don't want, want to get that. down that. You don't want to get down that road uh, on uh, on this thing. But overall, I mean, it looks like a, uh, it looks like a decent. I like the look of it. It it sort of has a. Uh, it's got that wedge look, you know. Uh, the dip switch thing is is odd. And I will say uh, before we move forward, if you do plan on emulating this, as far as we can tell, there are, you have two routes. Uh, route one it was the road, and Brent. We both took different routes. Brent took yeah. the. Uh, you want to talk about the? Do you know the name of the one? Was it XM XM seven? XM seven. Yeah. Uh, it's a standalone emulator. Uh, it looks like it stopped production at about 2015. Yeah. But I didn't even use that version. I used the first version release. That's where I had the most luck. And it looks like you know there's a few bug fixes between versions, but it doesn't look like a, a ton of things changed. Uh, it is in Japanese, but you can find guides that will get you to the point of loading a game, and then past that, you know, it's it's easy sailing. Yeah. Um, but it ran everything that I threw at it uh, without any problems, being at tape or disc, and I had it up and running in, in you know, 45 minutes. Mm. So I went the mess route, or the main, I, I use a kind of a mess front end for mine. And uh, this was a uh, was not the easiest route, I'll admit. Uh, I had some luck early on with discs, but only some discs. I had to learn about the jumpers. This, you know, people ask me like, is it hard to to do this every week and try to figure these things out? And the answer is nor normally not. But every once in a while, one of these machines come along that that are real troublesome. Uh, to deal with, and this was one for me because I really had to, without knowing how to turn on the disc operating system, you can't load discs, but you can load cassettes, which I had to learn. 
I didn't know Mess had a separate uh, uh, cassette control window, so I had to learn that. Some discs I could get to load, some discs I couldn't. Uh, I had to switch my original game, uh, uh, which was Dragon Busters, because I could not get this to load at all, uh, and it wouldn't work. And so I had to switch games about halfway through the week. But uh, by the end of the week, I feel like a real champ, uh, Brent, when it comes to loading this stuff. And uh, I did get cassettes working. Uh, I will say I, I got to I got to experience a cassette loading in real time. I don't know if your machine did. Did you have to do on yours? Did you have to do that? No, it, it sped through it. Yeah, I, I got to set through mine. Uh, eight for uh, uh, when I played Bridge Game, it, lo- it took nine minutes to load, and it's a countdown. <laughs> it just says loading nine. Then it, a few minutes later, eight. <laughs> I was just like, oh, <laughs> oh man. But I sat through it. And you can be darn sure, I will say, the old saying is true. If you load something like a cassette, you're more prone to sit there and play it because you darn sure don't want to load it again. That's, that's the truth. <laughs> but I found the whole thing, it was uh, abusing to me, if anything. So, But if you're going to load up the FM7, you be forewarned. And I, I have say, been informed real yeah. quick that uh, X, the XM7 has been updated as early as this year. Oh, man. I apparently grabbed it. I... I like I said, I grabbed the first iteration of it, or one of the first. So I guess I didn't. I thought I was grabbing it from the main page. Apparently, I was not. There you go. So, there you go. There well, you go. Your mileage may vary. I will say, uh, if you need the ROMs for these uh, images of plenty, uh, you can go to toast. Uh, go over to archive.org. I, f- I had no yes. no trouble finding software for this thing. In fact, the first thing I got to load was a disk. Uh, utility. <laughs> I was so happy. I was like, yes! <laughs> Disc utility, I'm in! So, yeah, you won't have any trouble finding images for this. So, out of the 212 games that were available for the FM7, uh, we were tasked with coming up with a couple of games that we thought would be interesting and fun. Uh, again, my original pick, Brent, was going to be the arcade port of a game called Dragon Buster, which I think I'd heard the arcade game, and I'd researched it, and sure enough, I couldn't get that one to load. Uh, so I moved on to something I'm a little more comfortable with. And, and amazingly, we have never covered this on this show. So I, I was stunned. Uh, although this is an interesting choice to cover it on. So the game I chose, Brent, was Minor 2049er. Minor 2049er, yes. Brent. A game uh, that uh, is not synonymous with the FM7. I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> if you've... Uh, Listen to our sister show, 1200XL. We actually covered this uh, several months ago for the Atari, which was the Atari 8-bits were the original uh, system for Minor 2049er. The FM7 was not, clearly. Uh, Right. The the funny thing about this, just a a brief history of this game, because it's kind of amusing. The guy that wrote this, his name uh, was Bill Hogue. And he he was an employee at a Radio Shack, and he would program on the on the on the Tandy computers, and he decided he was going to make a game, and he could not get the kind of action he wanted on a on a Tandy to make Minor for twenty forty nine, so he ended up moving over and programming it on a on an Atari, and he formed uh, his outfit Big Five, which is the developer and publisher of this. Now, Minor 2049 was something of a, of a revelation uh, back when it came out in 82 because it used larger cartridges than had ever been used on the Atari at the time. It was a big cartridge, and so <clears throat> uh, uh, this was the most expensive Atari game that it was ever released at the time. 
which uh, this thing was this thing was going for fifty bucks, which uh, the equivalent of that today would be a hundred and thirty five hundred forty yeah. bucks. Real Huge. expensive game, uh, and it had <clears throat> real good card protection on it. So it was it was uh, it was out there quite a while before anyone could do anything to, to uh, pirate it, and it sold great. Like they made bundles of money uh, by by selling Minor Twenty Forty Nine. Of course, it got ported. To a whole slew, I'll run through the list real quick. Of course, it, the the debut system was the Atari 8-bit, but you've got Apple uh, 2, the Atari 2600, 5200, the VIC-20, C64, uh, got a ColecoVision, the Television. I, did, I, I never have played the Intellivision version. The NEC PC-8801, which I'll talk about that one in a minute. The IBM PC Sharp, the M05, the Thompson, we looked at that a while back. The TI got a port. Uh, some things I've never even heard of. The Sony SMC777. Put that on your list, Brent. That's another obscure one. Uh, of course, the Brent's favorite, the Super Cassette Vision, got a, got a, got, also got a port. Uh, I looked at the PC8801 port of this because it's another Japanese computer version. It is eerily similar to the uh, FM7 version of this. and, uh, and uh, They look pretty much identical, same palette. It looks like it runs about the same, too. So this game was well-traveled, and uh, one of the more amusing stories about Minor 2049 is that when uh, Bill Hogue decided to write a standalone version that he could, that basically, he was going to emulate it himself without having to use any Atari's code, the original version, and he had put, uh, he had decoded it in such a way that he had to go, he had to spend several weeks going back and breaking his own code. He couldn't figure out how to actually get, he couldn't figure out how to emulate his own machine because it was so he had he put copy protection and stuff and it was real hard to break. So he had to, he had to basically hack himself, which I, I which always amuses me. And this game lives on in mobile devices and this, this Windows ports and, and whatnot. So uh, it, it, one of those wacky games, but this game was a real hit uh, back in the day and had a sequel, uh, Bounty Bob Strikes Back. Uh, that was not as popular. Well, I mean, it was still a good game. It's more of the same, you know. So, what is Minor 2049? You play Bounty Bob. Uh, according to the box, Bounty Bob is a member of the Canadian Royal Mounted Police, Brent. I, I, which, yeah, I know. And your mission is to search through all of nuclear Ned's abandoned uranium mines for the treacherous Yukon Johan. I knew none of this, by the way. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, you, have to you have to claim each section of the mine by running over it. There and which we'll get to that in a moment, and, and and you have to basically clean up these mines. Now, when you play these games, my opinion of the games were you the mine had become irradiated. I thought Bob was under cleaning up the mine. That's always what I thought. So I like my version better, frankly. But that <laughs> that's just me. So <clears throat> what do you do in this game? Well, but uh, as Bounty Bob, your job is to go. You have to go over every part of the mine. When you cross a section of the mine, uh, the uh, Floor will change from a from a lined floor to a solid colored floor, right? You have to jump, climb, uh, you have to take elevators, teleporters, uh, all sorts of conveyances uh, all through the mine and avoid nasty uh, mutated freaks <clears throat> that uh, will that will get in your way. Uh, you can turn the tables on these freaks by picking up. Uh, p uh, items that are scattered throughout the mine that turn briefly will turn the creatures into a solid blue color or a dark purple. And then you can either... I've always wonder what he does to them when he gets there because in the game you just sort of run over them. 
I don't know if he picks them up, stomps them. I don't know what he does, but they just go away uh, once you once you run them over. Um, after you've uh, after you've filled in all the lines in a certain level, uh, you uh, move on. The the screen uh, scrolls up and you move to the next level. I should also mention that there's a timer involved. Uh, if you do not clean that section of the mine in the allotted time limit, a bounty bob is killed, and yet and you lose a man. Uh, it's really a, a, a simple game, uh, but w- they take a simple concept and they and they expand it level after level. The first level, all you do is run around. The second level, uh, you have to uh, uh, you have to actually uh, go down. You have to avoid slicky slides. Once you run over an area of the bind, you'll fall down them. Then you've got levels with you've got levels with uh, uh, my phone going off. You've got levels. With uh, uh, elevators and and you've got at levels with little sliding uh, platforms that you've got to avoid all kinds of crazy stuff and a game that is uh, a game that's a lot of fun and has a lot of good levels. Now <clears throat> let's talk about the FM Seven version in particular, Brent. Um, <laughs> I, I've got to tell you that when I loaded this up, I was pretty excited to see would see that this existed. Now the FM7 version was done by a different outfit, uh, and it was there. It's called uh, Comptic, I believe is the way it's pronounced. Uh, Comptic is uh, uh, did a few games on the FM7, uh, but I, I would like to think they did it better than this. This version of this game, let's start with the the. There's there's a gorilla in the room here, and it's the controls. <clears throat> yeah. Now, I'm going to, here's my thing, okay, because I, when I was playing this, the controls were so bad that I thought to myself, this must be my emulator causing the controls to be horrible, okay, because I have played Minor 24 Nighter on a, a lot of systems. I know it very well, all right, as you know. I, I would say I'm a fairly seasoned player, and I couldn't control this for crap, and I tried every kind of crazy mech, move I could to make the controls suck less. Uh, and I, so I've marked that up, and so it put me in a lurch. I thought, man, this is going to be difficult to, to look at uh, because uh, the controls are so bad on this emulator. Well, I got to doing some research. Well, it turns out other people using other emulators, even playing this in, for real, had similar problems. And so I, I can only assume that this was shipped with a really wonky control mechanism. Um, the... Uh, the thing about it is, it, B- Bounty Bob, it's almost like uh, your, your key, if you're playing this with your keyboard, the keys get stuck, or, or it's just the input's really weird. I mean, it is playable, but you have to really adjust your play settings, your, your play style to it. Uh, this is actually, if you're watching the, uh, the footage of this, this is actually me playing the game. And uh, I, I look like a, a two-year-old with boxing gloves on trying to play this thing because you really have to line stuff up. I mean, this game was always about like being pretty accurate with your jumps and your, and using angles and stuff. But this has been compounded by the bad controls. Now you played this using a separate uh, emulator than I did. What, what were your experiences with the controls? The same. And I I think it is just a, uh, a buffer issue with the computer as opposed to, uh, the game itself yeah. because I other games had similar issues. Um, but really? it, it, yeah, I didn't it have made any other the, games be this bad. Oh, well they weren't this bad, but no other game that I at least played 
had you making this precise jumps or yeah. and it should have allowed for some slop on going up ladders and stuff like that and it doesn't and because of that the game's unplayable yeah, uh, well, i mean I you can for no it is you can force yourself to play it but you'll you'll be asking yourself why because you battle the game more than you battle you know what you're supposed to be doing in the game um which it gets to the point where you're you're not having fun. Uh, things that should be easy, going up ladders, uh, is a constant chore. And because of that, you just there's no enjoyment there to be had. I'm not a huge uh, fan of the game in general, but on this particular system, I, I didn't give it more than a half an hour, and uh, I'm never going to go back to it on this system. I, it's I'm just not, not good. The controls are just so bad it's unfun. I'm not gonna lie to you. I was real. I was real brought down uh, by the control scheme. And let's let's get past the controls for a minute. Just talk about the actual g gameplay. Now, I don't think there's any denying that uh, uh, this version is lacking in some of the more uh, uh, visually and audibly entertaining parts of the Atari uh, computer version. Absolutely. Uh, and one would wonder. Uh, because the Atari, of course, was out well. I mean, I, I'm going to go on the assumption and assume that the Atari is a is a better machine than the FM7 or more capable. Uh, but still, this is a pretty lackluster effort uh, uh, on this one uh, from Comptic because the it doesn't really look. You know, we've played Japanese games that they sort of they sort of took an American game like Hero comes to mind and they and they made, they adapted it to a more Japanese. Uh, way of playing or will look to it, you know, and it worked. Right. It looked okay. Uh, this one, I wouldn't say they stylized it. I don't know what the heck happened. It's I think just, they cheaped out on it. I think you might be right because I, you know, uh, and we'll get to yours in a minute. But I thought your game was a lot better looking, uh, among other things. The uh, uh, the there none of the uh, there's none of the sound that you would expect, and, and the graphics. I mean, they're serviceable. And this, by the way, is not the worst. Not even close to the worst version of this of this game because this game again just got released on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, for example, uh, and, and and a few others. But this this was a real bummer uh, overall to play. Uh, Bounty Bob period he flashes <clears throat> a la Pac Man on the Twenty Six Hundred when you move him. Uh, he uh, he doesn't have uh, he doesn't have a, a consistent gait. The game seems kind of jerky. The controls, like we mentioned, are definitely jerky. Uh, this was a real bummer. I'll be honest with you, and I and I sort of was sad that I didn't get to play Dragon Buster uh, this week. This uh, and if, I will say I don't think this game is uh, emblematic of all FM7 games. I just think of this. I don't know. You would think a game of this caliber they would have put more time in. Uh, it was a real bummer. Uh, yeah, I agree. Any, I agree pretty much on all fronts. Any parting thoughts on this before we move along? Um, you know, if if the if these graphics were on a lesser system, like let's say the Coco, a lesser, lesser capable system, uh, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Mm -hmm. But having seen other things that this computer can do, uh, I really think they just phoned this one in. I think you may be right. Uh, we did get one uh, listener uh, review on this one uh, from Frodo NL. Uh, he writes, Never a game I was very good at in, in any version I played. This one was not helped by the somewhat clumsy control scheme. Auto-repeat on every movement until, uh, until on hits a different direction or space, really. 
Question mark. <laughs> I agree. Graphically quite decent, but sound is rather limited. Five out of ten. I think that's pretty generous. I think uh, it's very generous. Now, I will say this. If the controls were lined out, I think this would be a fairly serviceable version of Miner. Uh, not, not attractive, but serviceable. Because all the elements are there. I will also mention that I was able to get to the third level of this, despite the, the control uh, issues. And um, as far as... Because Miner 24.9 has ten levels. And I'm going to assume that they're all there. However, uh, as far as I can tell, having looked all over YouTube and looked all over the net, there is no footage of even the third level uh, on this game anywhere. And there's very little footage of this on YouTube. So I'm guessing this one is avoided and has no one's really bothered to play it with for the obvious reasons or maybe no one was even skilled enough to get that far. I can't tell you. So I may go back and play this again just so I can at least put footage up of the... Of, the, of someone getting to the third level, I figure it's my duty as a as a uh, as a broadcast journalist, as Bobby Heenan used to say, <laughs> to 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 try to add something back to the community. But yeah, overall, I was disappointed in this one, Brenny. I, I have to say it was a, a, a real letdown. And I will say, if you're into Minor Twenty Forty Nine er, which is a great game, uh, I suggest that you play this on a one of the more competent versions, which. Uh, I think the Atari 8-bit version is really good, and also the ColecoVision version I think is pretty nice as well, Brent. It's uh, definitely not worth emulating on the F on the uh, FM7. Yeah, FM yeah, I agree with you on that. So, uh, we move on. Now, Brent, you had an interesting history of choosing a game this time around because you also had to switch games. Do you want, you want to fill us in on that before we move on? Well, I, I sort of picked... One of the games before I really dove into the library, uh, and then after randomly picking some games, I thought, you know, this other game is good enough that I want to give it some airtime. So real quick, I just want to run over the first game I picked, which was Mario Brothers Special. Uh, for those that don't know, Nintendo was a lot looser with their intellectual properties back in the day, and I want to talk to talk with you about that in a second, Aaron. Uh, but they gave Hudson Soft uh, the Mario Brothers arcade release to kind of play around with. And that is not what this is. It is not trying to uh, replicate Mario Brothers, the arcade game. But it takes that sort of physics, sort of the, the run and slide, single screen jump up and down type of thing. And they made their own game out of it. And it was actually released on... Almost all of the Japanese computers at the time. <clears throat> uh, what it was was a four-screen affair uh, based more about jumping than about uh, taking care of enemies. So on the first stage, you have uh, platforms that will scroll back and forth. They're solid platforms with one hole, and you have to try to jump up the hole to get to the very top where you have to flip five switches and the tricky thing here is the switches will actually uh, slowly tick down and turn themselves back off so you have to hit all five of them pretty quickly and then exit the level before they go back to, to before any of them switch back off uh, the second stage is has trampolines as platforms and turtles from the Mario Brothers game where the turtles are on the platform and you spring the platform, the, use the trampoline part of it, you can then kick the turtle down and uh, clear it that way. The third stage, you're collecting money symbols, 
and there is a uh, conveyor belt and turtles as enemies that you can't kill because you don't have trampolines and you can't hit them from underneath. That concept's not in this. It's all about uh, uh, the platforming aspect of it. So you collect so many money symbols on the stage and you go into the, you uh, collect a ring and then you go into the final stage, which is almost like a bonus stage. There's just a lot of money symbols with uh, lines of platforming, sort of like the coin bonus stage in the original Mario Brothers arcade game. Uh, I found this interesting because I did not know about Mario Brothers Special. And Aaron, I know that you didn't take a look at this because I told you I was going to play no another game. But what do you think of Nintendo loaning out its properties so much in those early years? Do you think they just didn't have a concept of how popular Mario was going to be? Or do you think it was just uh, a young Nintendo not knowing to hold on to those things? Because now they pretty much hold on to them like grim death. If you if you look into Nintendo's past, uh, I think part of it was straight up money. But a lot of it, they one thing about Japanese uh, corporations that I've read about over the years is they do each other a lot of favors. You know, they 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 actually work back and forth with each other, and you know, to, for for business uh, uh, to get a business uh, part, not a partnership, but just to uh, have something out there, a boon or whatever. They 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 share stuff, they trade stuff, they do each other favors sometimes. So it could be part of it that it could be Nintendo trying to get in good with the. I mean, it's not like Fujitsu is a little company; they're a massive company uh, at the time, uh, or or whoever you know whoever was publishing this. They they may have they may have uh, worked out a deal that involved the NES. There's no telling what what they had in mind, but I'd wager it was just some sort of business arrangement that they did. I mean, it's, it's funny now because that's you look back at the times that they lent out their licenses, and and, and inevitably they've been. Almost always horrible. I think of the CDI stuff in particular, uh, where it was a hideous idea to lend out your uh, Mario and, and, and the Zelda franchises. Sure. Uh, but uh, and this game you're describing, I want to give this. It sounds it sounds pretty good, actually. I kind of want to play well, it. Well, yeah, this was a Hudson Soft game, and Hudson Soft, especially during this era, uh, was doing a lot of things right, and they did do a lot of things for Nintendo. They made a lot of games that were on, was on the NES and whatnot. So I think a you know a friendly business arrangement could certainly be what got this game made. Hudson Soft's one of those outfits too that they pop up everywhere. Yeah, so they must have a, they must have had a lot of really good relationships. You got to think aside from the fact that they were they were involved in hardware, they were involved in all sorts of titles across several different platforms. They seem to have enjoyed uh, uh, they uh, good relations with a lot of different outfits, and so it's if you're going to pick someone where you're going to make an arrangement with them, Hudson Soft. Plus, you know they're not going to abuse your franchise, sure, because uh, you know, they've got competent people over there. So that 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 makes it a little more sensible to me that it was them. Yeah, and for those interested in this, um, boy, there's not an easy way. There's not an easy system out there to emulate that this is on. Uh, just a quick rundown. It's on the PC-6001 and that line of computers. The FM7, the X1, the Sharp MZ-1500, uh, the Sharp MZ-2200, Hitachi S1, PC-9801, and the SMC-777. So, you know, none of those are just grab your 
your easy to open up and use emulator, but the game is actually pretty interesting. Uh, that floaty, weird Mario controls from Mario Brothers Arcade are present. Um, the controls still have some issues, just like other games on the FM7, where you have to press another key to stop your current key from being registered. Uh, so I would probably try to find it on a different system. But the concept of the game, if you enjoy Mario Brothers Arcade, is something that you can look at and probably enjoy. Um, it's definitely a high score game. After you get through the four stages, it just continues to loop and gets harder with more enemies and whatnot. So, yeah, give it a shot. I think it's worth it. I think it's worth emulating, uh, obviously, just maybe on a better system. Now for the main event of the evening, <clears throat> boy, I'm going to kill this name. It's the Hokai Tente Chima Chima. Uh, this was a 1984 release from Buff Tech, and I want to talk about them as a company real quick. They did a thing where they had contests, and then they would take those contests and turn them into games. And that's something that Chima Chima was one of those winners. Uh, <laughs> You're kidding it, me. No, and it's, it's, they've done it a lot and they've released a lot of games from it. And this was a, this is just not a no name company. They've been around since 84. And just recently, uh, in 2006, and their final demise was in 2009. Uh, that's a pretty good run. And they yeah. actually got taken out by a lawsuit. Uh, which is unfortunate, unfortunate way for a company to go. Uh, but that kind of thing happens. So these guys had been around the block, and a, the way they got a lot of their earlier concept games was through these programming competitions. Now, real quick, Aaron, before we get into what my game actually was, what do you think about that as a, sell, as a way of uh, getting ideas for games to publish, to have contests and bring in fresh outside help? Um, horrible idea, frankly. I mean, if that's going to be your main source of games, because you're depending on people you don't know to produce things you think people might want. That's, that's so it sounds it sounds risky. I, I, I'm assuming they didn't do that with every game. Well, uh, now you have to understand something. In these competitions, someone you're basically selling a concept more than you're selling a finished product. Mm. So you're saying, you know, as a game developer, someone says hey, look at this game, this is what I've put together, and then they take it in-house and kind of polish it. Uh, so in that regard, thinking of it that way, what do you think of it? Well, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, uh, when, you're at, when you were publishing in the, in the Wild West days uh, where, uh, where you, were, you were picking up games that from independent programmers, which happened a lot, uh, uh, in the in like the UK, for example, uh, the the bedroom programming year. I mean, it's roughly the same idea. Your uh, your shop now. It's not a contest though. Uh, you're 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 just shop. You're sort of picking and choosing the best of the bedroom programmer stuff. To, and then you're trying to or you know trying to license it and put it out there. Having a contest that you give people a thought of what you want, and then having them program around the thought. Again, it's. It seems to me risky, you know, uh, uh, and also it seems like you could you could curtail you could you could limit the uh, the independent programmer's ability to make games 
by limiting them to a subject? Would it be better just to have them make whatever they wanted, like in mass, and you pick the best thing? Probably. You know, but if you have a certain idea of what you want in mind, I guess this is the way to go. Anyway it goes, it it seems like a, a, a risk to me. Yeah, I it's really uh, this is really a a a eighties concept in my opinion, where you had a whole lot of bedroom programmers and they had um the ability to spit out a game by themselves. Yeah. I don't think this is something necessarily that could work today. I think games have gotten uh, too large in scope. Now, there are still some games that are single publishers or single developers, full game. Uh, Stardew Valley comes to mind. It's an incredible game. It sold millions of copies, and in every single bit of it was done by one guy, um, which is spectacular. But he is he's the exception, not the rule. Mm. And I know that a lot of these contest winners, uh, they never get to see the actual fruits of their labor, because they are paid for winning the contest, uh, but part of the contest in most rec- in most cases is you have to give us your your game. You know, we have to we own your idea once you, you enter the contest. So if you win, you get the money from the contest, but you don't actually get the money from the sales of the game. Well, um, I wonder how I wonder how much money you would win. Was that ever did you ever see that? Because um, I'm, for, like for example, whoever won this contest. How did the game sell versus? I mean, that is that's also sort of risk if you've got a real dud. I would assume sure. they'd have enough common sense to pick ones they knew were surefire hits. Yeah. I think a lot from not necessarily this contest, but some of the ones I've seen in the past. Top prize is the equivalent to about two thousand dollars today. So, so peanuts, it's right in that area where you're like, ah, you know, two thousand dollars to a bedroom programmer could be a lot. Uh, but then the game could be a huge hit and sell millions of dollars worth of products. Right. So, that would be heartbreaking if you're the programmer, uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about what Chima Chima is. Um, it's a single screen maze game where you control a cyclops and you are battling the spirits uh, of the undead in this graveyard setting, and you're basically trying to put them to rest again. Uh, you can run around independently to your projectile, uh, which you also control with your movement keys. It travels a little bit faster than you, and it is basically this ball of flames. Uh, so if you are both walking down the same corridor at the same, you start at the same time the fireball will reach the end of the corridor roughly twice as fast as your character walking. So it makes for a very unique gameplay mechanic. And then the button will trigger an explosion, uh, sort of like a Bomberman-type explosion, where it will go down all the paths that are available to it. So if you hit it at a uh, crosswalk, it will go in all four directions. And you have to use that to battle... uh, the, the ghosts and spirits they're raising from the grave. It is very interesting control-wise. Uh, the mazes are not set up in a way that you have just lines horizontal and vertical. There are sections where there will be squares of four set maze sections together. It almost makes up like a little room. Um, and because of that... Everything can be off, 
off shifted where you would expect there to be a grid like pattern, uh, making maneuvering a little bit difficult. But I don't think it's actually a flaw in the system. I think it is purposely designed in the game to make it more difficult. Uh, as you're running around, you yourself has no defense against the enemies. Uh, your only defense is the projectile that you produce that will explode. But when it explodes, if you're caught in the explosion, you're killed as well. So ideally, you want to be on one side of the screen while your projectile is on the other side of the screen. Uh which makes you split your attention on two different things. You're looking at your guy and you're looking at your bomb. And uh, uh, it makes for a very interesting gaming experience. Aaron, how did you fare with that? You know, when I first booted this up, uh, amazingly, I thought the little gravestones were computer monitors. I thought it was computers. I, so I was like, what am I doing? Wow. Here? Well, I mean, they look like, they do look like little, like, a, look almost like an Amiga 1000s. Uh, with the, instead of gravestones, uh, it didn't take long when the zombies popped out. I was like, okay, yeah. it's, I knew it was either if they were computers, it must be it must be apples. But anyway, oh, oh, so, <laughs> mm, anyway, the uh, uh, the game. I, at first, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, really, I was like, what in God's name is this? But this is a game. The more I played it, the more I liked it. Uh, yes, uh, you. It is, there is a, I hate Bomberman, as you know. I've never been a big Bomberman fan. I don't hate it. I just don't like it. Uh, but this, this has a, this has like the Bomberman explosions combined with like a Mr. Do or something where you have the little ball. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, and so what, what I would love to see, I, I could see an arcade version of this. And here's how I would do it. Twin sticks with the second stick or the right-handed stick having a button on top, Right. That way you can independently move your eyeball while you also move the, the little fireball and you can explode the fireball. Actually, both sides would have to have a fire button. But it, having, as it stands, when you're moving the fire the fireball around here, you're also sort of moving your eyeball. It's real kooky. And this but is another see, game. I, I don't agree on your twin stick idea. Right. Because I think the challenge and the... Uh, uh, the enjoyment, really, of the game is being forced to control your eyeball and your character and your projectile at the same time. I think that's what really brings the fun in. Well, I, I, you're, I can understand what you're saying, but listen. We just played Crawl a couple weeks ago. A few people out there might have seen that episode. And Crawl, you have the glaive. Right, and you can independently control the glaive. This this ball sort of reminded me of the glaive, like you can move. It could, in fact, this was better than the glaive. Like you could actually this thing, you can move this thing all over the map independent of your guy. So I was thinking with twin sticks, you could actually move move your guy around too to avoid. No, okay, enemies. let me stop you right there. Yeah, your comparison is stupid, and please never give it again. Hey, I love that. That's I, the worst thing I've ever heard. I love it. Does I mean the the, the the I mean I'm talking the, in the in the in the game crawl. I'm, what I'm saying is this is better than the crawl. No, this is what I'm no, saying. No, and, and no, no. This just is not wanted for the glaive. You, I like the <laughs> idea of moving this weapon around the maze because this thing, unlike say the Mister Do Ball that just sort of randomly goes crazy, like this thing, you control it all over the maze, far as far as you want to move it. Yes. And as long as you've put your eyeball in a place where he's not going to get killed, you can you can move this thing all over the place. And then yep. after you explode it, there's a sort of a reset period of a few seconds before you get your ball back. Absolutely. You know? uh, it is. And, 
it is a concept that grew on me. The more I played it, the more I liked it. And yeah. I played this for quite a while, and I was like, I played this way more than I played Mario 2049er. Oh, because yes. Because at the end of the day, they took the control limitations of this device, and like you said, this thing ain't, this thing ain't what I would call a pledge to control. Yeah. But they took the control limitations, and they made something that fits, that you can use. It doesn't hamper it as badly as it does the other game. Uh, on top of that, it just... Uh, I like the concept of, of uh, the maze... You're right about it not being like a grid. that Because that would suck. You don't yeah. want that. This game, you have to negotiate your way around corners and stuff. And you have to, and, and there are little hairpin turns. And stuff. That's cool. That's part of it. Because it also makes the ball less effective. Which makes it more fun. So when you when you hit... Uh, and I think, as I recall, when you hit zombies, like in multiples, you get more, you get your points go, you know, it's a, it's a point yes. grab. This is a points game. Yeah. Uh, the more zombies you can get in one explosion uh the more points you know you get multiples points ones two three four up the line um which makes for some inner entertaining you really want to try to group these zombies up uh also and i don't know if you ever did this you can actually just take your fireball and beat a zombie to death with it just back and forth whacking it it takes about 10 <laughs> whacks so it's that. not practical yeah uh but in some situations, like when the... Because the ball itself can't hurt you. It's the explosions that hurt you. But if a zombie is really close to you, you can just sit there and beat it to death with the little ball and then run on. Uh, so I thought that was very interesting. Two things happened to me in this game that I could only get to happen one time. Uh, I was able to get to a boss, and the boss stage just starts at the top of the screen and continuously approaches down to you. And uh, there's no maze, there's no nothing. There's just uh, a big open space. So you have to be really quick. And I was never quick enough to actually kill the boss with the, with the uh, projectile. It, it would always run into me, and then the game would just continue on, which I thought was very strange. The second thing that could only get to happen once was on the far uh, upper left-hand corner of the screen. I was able to make a platform appear on the edge of the screen, and then I was able to ride that platform around the perimeter of the maze and then get off of it at a different place. So I couldn't figure out what actually triggered that to happen, but it shows that this game has little secrets and is more in-depth. Uh, even than its surface value. This game was actually released on a few different systems. Uh, it was released on the MSX, the PC 6001, the PC 88, the Sharp uh, X1, the SMC 777, and here's your mind blower. This actually has an iPhone App Store release. <laughs> wow, that does blow my mind. I, I did not check it out, uh, but it I know it is out there. It came out, I believe, in 2004. The differences, and I don't know about the iPhone because I could not find footage of that, but like the MSX and uh, some of the other systems, the game is radically different. The mazes are much smaller. They are grid-like. Um and it, while the graphics look different, I don't think they're improved. So if you want this experience 
which I actually do recommend doing, you have to learn an FM7 emulator well enough to get this to run. And I challenge you out there, listeners, uh, do it. I think the game is good enough, even with its sloppy controls, even with its absolutely ear-piercing, horrible sound, you will mute it uh, because it is just repetitive garbage. The game is fun enough. I think it's worth checking out. I uh, I think you found yourself a real winner here, man. I uh, I love this game. And this is not necessarily my sort of game, but I really enjoyed it. And the things I liked about it, look, the, they got the colors and stuff right. I like the... Uh, uh, the uh, the idea, it, you know, when you when you're in the graveyard and the ghosts initially come out, eventually what you'll get is you'll you'll kill almost all the ghosts and more ghosts come out. And you'll see a little blue puff of smoke around the headstones before they uh, the next batch of zombies or ghosts come out that you have to kill. So <laughs> it, it it plays fair with you, and it it's a game that's going to require. This isn't a walk up and be great game. You've got to figure out this bizarre control concept. But it is there's a lot of fun to be had moving that ball around and trying to kill zombies in mass or ghosts yes. in mass. And so you know the point push part of it. I really think there's uh, there's a lot there. This is definitely one I would absolutely try to go out of your way to to to, to uh, have a go at. Uh, you've got to understand, and you can see I, this footage is captured from me. And so you can see, as I, I some of this is early on, I couldn't understand the concept of getting out of the way of your own explosion because that's what usually gets you, is you're blowing yourself up, and that's key. You want that ball sort of far away from you, uh, but it's on, at the same time you've got to protect yourself from the from the uh, the bad guys. So you can't get, have the thing get too far away, or you'll be screwed. And you're also trying to move your eyeball while the ball's moving around. It's it's there's a lot going on. It doesn't seem like there is, but there but there is. I think this is a, a real winner you stumbled upon. I gotta ask you two things. One, was there a did you uncover any sort of backstory to this? Uh, Just that you were a cyclops uh, trying to put the undead back to rest. That's all you got there. And then secondly, yeah. how did you come across this, uh, Brad? Did you because I really didn't see this played anywhere. Random clicking. That's oh really. <laughs> Oh well, that's yep. great. And this and, just a random one on the list. And this thing could have easily been an arcade game. I thought yeah. maybe it was even a port when I first. I mean, it looks like it was a vert port, the way it's structured. You know, uh, uh, it could have been, but it wasn't. Yeah, it, real yep. a real stunner. We did have a, uh, a listener review on this one as well, uh, Brent. Uh, Frodo writes, interesting little game. Uh, the combined control of your character and the bomb make for a nice challenge. The graphics are rather basic but functional. Shame the music is rather repetitive and gets on your nerves after a while, but the game itself is quite playable. I actually enjoyed this once I realized what I was supposed to do. Eight out of ten. So I think I, that I think that hundred percent agree with that review. I think this one is uh you you've done it again. I got to give you credit. You found some real hidden gems, and I think you've got another one here, my friend. And uh, I salute you. <laughs> this one is definitely worth the hassle. I will say this is a cassette game. As I mentioned, because you get to sit through nine minutes of loading, uh, <laughs> but uh, it will work uh, it, uh, on both emulators, and so it, it's definitely one to g give a shot if you have the patience to, or the uh, the uh, guts, the chutzpah to go out there and figure out how to load her up. And if you have the, if you use XM7, no waiting for that tape to load. Right so. on, brother. You know what else uh, takes a lot of chutzpah, Brent? What's it's that? Firing up the wheel. 
Here oh, we go. Okay, let's have a little wheel action. Yeah, let's do it, man. Let's turn the wheel theme down from Jeff, and there we go. So, last week, you'll recall, there was a little malfunction at the junction, Britton. I forgot to stock the wheel, so I was ready a week in advance this time around. Uh, we've added the CDR as our system of the week, our retro rewind system, Brent. And we've also added the Acorn Electron. Brent, tell the yes. people about the locks on here. Uh, since we had to remove three shows with John uh, changing jobs, we have decided to lock those three shows into the wheel. If they are spun be it the TRS-80, the Atari XL, or 1200XL, or the Spectrum, they will stay on the wheel for another spin, and those will stay locked in till at least Thanks for giving Marathon. All right, you ready to spin this sucker? Here we go. Let's do it. Here we go. Any predictions, Brent, before I give this a whirl? I think we're going to get chat choice. Okay, it's been a while. You think we're going to get, you don't think we're going to get one of these locked ones yet? Nope. All right, here we go. Oh! Here we go, there she goes, and the winner is... The Micro... Oh, we're doing Microprose Games, Brent. Games for Microprose. Now, this is one of the pieces that came from our uh, Thanks, Thanks for, for Giving Marathon. Microprose Games. Now, I'll admit, I'm glad this came up, Brent. I'll tell you why. Uh, when we did this on the uh, Amigathon... Uh, no, Thanks uh, for Giving. Me, I did it again. We did this on Thanks for Giving. Uh, we picked, we kind of wimped out, didn't we, a little bit on this one. Uh, we took, a, we played console games from Microprose, and so now we're going to have time to actually delve into a more, uh, a deep, deeper dive into the Microprose world. Uh, Brent. Yes. By the way, I should mention that this was a, uh, a suggestion of David Pickford back uh, when we did this at the uh, Thanks for Giving Marathon. Uh, your opinion on Microprose, quickly. Uh. They are a very popular company, uh, and have they have a lot of really good games. You didn't. They seem... do a lot of simulators too. Uh, yeah. It should be a very interesting week. You didn't seem real excited to. Uh... You know, I I don't want to offend anyone in chat, but they're not my favorite publisher. It's because you're not a big sim guy, are you? Well, let's just say eh. facts. You're you're shallow as a gamer. You don't oh, like that's... to dive into you don't like to dive into that deep pool, do you? You like to stay in the kiddie pool, right? I can't. Dare I remind Does you? Microprose I just make a fighting game. Chimera, Chimera. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So that'll be great. Please uh, join us next week again, same bat time, same bat channel, nine a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I want to get a quick plug in here, Brent. Amigathon is is coming. I'll get it right this time. Uh, you're looking at less than two weeks away, Saturday, yeah. July 18th, Brent. It will be a happening as myself, John, Boat of Carshawler, and you, via remote, uh, will cordially invite you to our annual uh, charity event where we raise money for the Children Miracle Network. Uh, we are enlisting the help of our good buddies, big-time players, Brent, and Amiga Bill and Neil from Retro Man Cave. We're gonna, they're going to hop in and take over several hours of this uh, event. Uh, and it should be quite a quite a uh, interesting uh, fun time. 12 hours, uh, a 12 hour extravaganza. Uh, if you uh, need uh, information, hop over to everythingamiga.com for details. Uh, and we will be broadcasting the entire thing live on Twitch. We'll be, uh, it'll be a good time. Uh, are you looking forward to this one? 
quick correction, Aaron. I will not be there via live or remote. Oh, you won't be. I thought you were going to be going to be popping in on the on the on the uh, on the on your side. No, no, I will not be. Oh, that sucks. Well, that's oh, well, we may have to work something out there on that. Uh, nevertheless, it should be happening. We should have a good time, and we're hoping to raise money for a, a good charity there, Children's Miracle Aircraft. We've you know, we've raised. Uh, quite a bit of money for them. I mean, by our standards, over the last couple of years, like this is the fourth one of these we've done, uh, and we would uh, appreciate whatever you can uh, kick in. Again, we don't t we don't handle any of the money; it goes straight to the charity uh, as it should. So that's the July 18th, Brent, uh, for that. Any parting thoughts, Brent, before we take this thing to the house? Um, I think this coming week will be a lot easier than the week we just had, emulator-wise. Uh. Yeah. It's going to be a, hard, a lot harder to un, unearth a hidden gem as a lot of MicroPose stuff is very popular and out there. But I'm we'll sure. see what we can do. Yeah, you never know what you're going to find. Well, hey, thanks again. You want to give a shout-out to our people in the chat, Brent? Uh, let's do a little bit of a lurker look here. Uh, looks like we got Commander Root sitting in chat, being a little quiet. John D 71 hello, hello to you, sir. Uh a little bit of three Bible setting in chat. It's Sunday just to morning. name a few of our lurkers. And then our chatters, we've got Challenged Moose, Picard, Rushi, uh, Paul Kitching, Curtis tailing in at the end, uh, Frodo, Paul Kitching, Amiga Bang, uh, Buck Owens, uh, me, I'm in chat. I know it's surprising, but there I am. Your wife. Uh, Hermski mm -hmm. made an appearance. Tons and tons of people. We had a, and I, we had a, we had a full today. we had a full chat uh, just as we started just started going live. So it's good everyone came out for us. Yeah, we appreciate Decoder. You hello, hello. Thank you for coming out. Turn out to uh, to give us your uh, give us your eyeballs for just a little while. Have a good week, everybody. Be back here next week for some micro prose action. And until then. Crawl Rules. Thanks for joining us today. We really hope you enjoyed the episode. We'd like to say hello to all of our YouTube subscribers, as well as all of our Twitch followers. We want to say a special thank you to Duncan Styles, who does all of our awesome vector graphics, and to BarkBit for writing our incredible closing theme. Would you like to help keep ARG spinning for as little as a dollar a month? You can do so at anchor.fm slash ARG presents. Help keep us spinning. Just like these fine folks. John Duckman. Chris Fools. Frodo NL. Gary Heather. Anthony Purvis. Graham W. Vetke. John Schaller, Terry Howard, Hermski, and Retroalgy. Don't want to explain another credit card bill? That's okay too. You can help us by leaving us a positive review on Apple iTunes and Spotify. Have an idea you'd like to add to the wheel? You can contact us at argpresents at mail.com. ARG films live on Twitch every Sunday, 9 a.m. EDT. Hope to see you there.